So we continue uh, our non-series series today. Uh, we've been talking about the the four subjects of the Advent, which typically have been lifted up through Protestant churches for generations. Um, today we're going to be talking about love. And uh, typically with these four phrases, you know, we studied hope first and then we went to peace last week. Next week we'll talk about joy. And with each of those, we usually call it a season of, a season of love. But today I want us to focus on the gift of love, or as the song says, a breath of love. And hopefully I can put this all together in a way that makes sense. Um, Like I told Paige last night, I'm afraid this is an hour-long sermon, and because we have so much to do today, I have to get it done in 25 to 30 minutes. So in other words, I have to talk really fast. So fasten your seatbelts, grab your pen and paper. Uh, You're going to need to write down some stuff, okay? This passage that Jane read for us is a passage about Christmas. It's about the the enunciation, the the pronunciation, whatever you want to call it, whatever fancy word you want to use. It's about the declaration that Mary is going to be a mama and that Joseph's going to be a papa, even though they haven't been married yet and even though they haven't been together yet. This is an amazing story. The, the child is, is, is pronounced, his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I just want to make the, the fundamental accusation that uh, this Emmanuel means more than just God with us. It also means God loves us. And um, I've got a lot of verses I want to put together for you, and I'll do these quickly. Um, but first, I want to tell you... Uh, One of the pastors, you know, I have several pastors that I watch their videos, I study them, I read their books because they're like mentors to me even though I've never met them. One of them is Bill Johnson in Redding, California. And he said something interesting this week that I have gotten fixated on. He says, regardless of our circumstances or the questions that are being asked of us, we have basically two core responses to anything. We either act in love or we act in fear. Those are, that's it. Those are our only options. So whenever your car breaks down, the first thing you do, you either act in fear or you act in love. When your child comes home and says, Mom, Dad, I screwed up, we act either in fear or in love. When you get out of bed on Sunday morning, you think, okay, should I go to church or should I stay home and watch football? You're either making a decision on fear or love. Those are our only two options. And the scriptures uh, indicate that this is always the battle that's going to go on in our lives. This is always going to, to be an issue for us. But fear usually wins out because fear has a way of immobilizing us, has a fear of overwhelming us and causing us to shut down. But just remember that when that happens, fear is not from God. Fear did not originate from God. It is not his plan for us. It's not his desire for us. But yet he lets us to be overtaken by it because remember, it's a choice fear, or love. With this said, I want you to think about this passage in Galatians chapter 5, I believe. Uh, I didn't write this down for some reason. Yes, I did. Uh, I just didn't write down the actual verse. It's chapter 5 something. But it says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were also under the law, that we might receive full rights of sons. The key phrase is, When the time had fully come, Jesus was born into the world. 
So if we look at that phrase, remember, I've, I said this before, but you may not remember. Uh, there's two different Greek words for the word timing. One is chronos, where we get the word chronology, which means time and sequence. That's time that we can set, and we know that at this day and time, this will happen, or we're going to do this, because we can follow it and know when to expect it. But the other word, which I like even better, is the word kairos, which means a season of time. It's like when a farmer has planted corn, and he's thinking to himself, harvest time is coming, but he doesn't really know the day or the time. He just knows there's a season coming when harvest has to take place. So this is a kairos opportunity. And what the scriptures are saying is when the timing was perfect, not chronology-wise, but when the timing was perfect, when the conditions of people's hearts were right, when, when the, the world around us was, was set up just perfectly, that, that God put his son Jesus into this world in perfect timing because his timing is always perfect. And so when the time had fully come, now this is just something to wrap your brain about. In Romans 5, 8, it says that while we were still sinners, that's Kairos timing. When we were dead to our sin, in Ephesians 2, 1, Kairos timing. When we were separated from Christ and excluded from heavenly citizenship, in Ephesians 2, 11, perfect timing. We were without hope. We were without God, Ephesians 2, 12. We were void of peace and joy. And while we were still lost and broken and scared to death and depressed and overwhelmed and at the end of our rope, that is when he came into our lives. That's when Jesus was born into our relationship with the Father. The timing is absolutely perfect. It's never, it never fails. John 3.16 reminds us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him, you know the rest. God loved, and that's why he sent his son Jesus into this world. And so I started thinking about that, and I started pondering Matthew 7, 9, which basically says in a nutshell, this is the Darren version of the Bible, um, what kind of a father would give his child a rock if his child was in need of bread? But it goes on to say in Matthew 7, 9, that even an evil person can have the ability to give a good gift at a given moment. So how much greater is our Heavenly Father's gifts to us who is completely, perfectly loving? How much more awesomer will his gifts be because of that love motivation and that perfect timing and that perfect understanding of our needs? How perfect is his gift going to be for us at that key time when the time had fully come? I hope that makes sense. When the time had fully come, God acts in a huge way, and he does it every time. So I want to do something really off the wall here. Uh, I know we're talking about Christmas stuff. We're talking about baby Jesus in the manger, you know, 7.9 ounces, whatever it is um, that the prophet, uh, you know, from Talladega Nights says. Um, but anyway, First Kings 18 and 19, I'm sorry, obscure reference, I guess. Um, <laughs> You know what I do in my off time? Yes, chapter and verse. First Kings 18, the first couple of verses, I just want to, I want to pull out some things from the story of Elijah, which I think are very apropos to what I'm trying to get across there, at least what I think God is trying to say through me. In chapter 8 of First Kings, chapter 18, it says, After a long time, 
Kairos, after a long time, in some translations, after many days, still Kairos timing. In the third year of the drought is what it's implying because Elijah had already gone to King Ahab and said, look, because you're so evil, you're so corrupt, God's going to bring discipline to you and your kingdom for three and a half years. It will not, it will not rain. And so in the third year of that drought, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and it said something very unique. Go and show yourself to King Ahab. Now, typically, whenever God would speak to a prophet, he would say, the scriptures would say, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he went and he spoke what God told him to speak. He gives him the words, and then the prophet goes and delivers the message. That's what prophets do, deliver messages. The word of the Lord is a message. Even in John chapter 1, when it says the word was God, the word was with God, talking about the Logos, which is Jesus, he is still the message. Jesus was the message. And so the message is usually delivered. But here he says to Elijah, I want you to go and just show yourself to King Ahab. In other words, you don't have to say a word yet. That is obscure to me. That just doesn't make sense, except when you consider he doesn't need to say anything. Why? Because after three some odd years in a famine that has has hurt hundreds of thousands of people, destroyed crops and destroyed cattle and any other type of of, uh, financial contribution, all he has to do is walk into the presence of Ahab and pray Ahab's going to remember him. You are the one who brought evil upon us. You're the one who spoke this word of judgment against me and my kingdom. You're the one who did this. Elijah didn't have to say a word. He was the message. And so I I just wanted to throw out there something for you to ponder. Is it possible that you, without speaking a single word, you could be a message, a message for somebody else who's either hurting or broken or just in full and complete and total despair? Is that possible? Absolutely. But then here's the backup to that. He says to Ahab, I will send rain on the land after you have gone and showed yourself. So everything's in limbo. Hundreds of thousands of people dying. The crops are dying. The, the, the cattles are dead. Uh, there's a stench in the, in, the, in the air that is just making everybody sick. And, and God is saying, but Elijah, I'm not going to bring rain to this land until you prove your faithfulness. Not prove your faithfulness, but show your faithfulness. So here's my backup question. Is it possible that while you're waiting to fulfill your God-given assignment, that people are suffering, waiting for you to do what God has called you to do? So, so here, here's the scenario. Maybe I should put this in better words. I believe that every one of us, when we become Christians and we start growing in our faith, that God gives us assignments from time to time that he expects us to complete. And if we fail to complete that assignment, then he'll either give us a different assignment or he'll just send a different messenger. And so I know and I believe that when God 
talks to you in your prayer lives, he'll give you an order. He'll give you some instructions. And he'll say, this is what I want you to do for the sake of other people or what I want you to do for your own sake so that you can be more viable in my kingdom. And then he says, go and show yourself, but yet you stay and hesitate. Is it possible that in your hesitation or in your resistance that people are suffering all over the world because you don't have the faith to step out and to fulfill the instructions that God has given you? That is what troubles me, and I hope it troubles you as well. We don't like to think like that. We don't like to think like that. We just think, Lord, this is an option for me. If I don't go, you'll just send somebody else, right? But he said to Elijah, once you have gone and shown yourself, then I will bring rain to the land. But only after you have done your due diligence. So to to just kind of meander through the story a little bit, we know that what happens after that is that uh, Elijah goes and he tells Obadiah, who is the, the, the godly priest of the kingdom, the only one left, it seems. And he says, uh, Obadiah, go and tell Ahab that I want all 850 Baal prophets and Asherah prophets. I want them to meet me on the top of Mount Carmel. We're going to have a little come to Jesus meeting, right? And so, so he, he gets up there on the mountain and all these Israeli uh, people are up there because they're like the audience. They're like in a stadium almost. They're like, yeah, we want to see the fight. We want to see the football game, right? And so they're all cheering, you know, they got their banners, their t-shirts with uh, God's last name on it, you know, that kind of stuff like we do at games, right? And so uh, they all had their hot dogs and um, hot chocolate, but they're, but they're there to watch, right? And then, and then Elijah is just, he's just livid with them. Why can't you guys choose for yourselves whom you're going to serve? Whether it be God or whether it be Baal, you need to make up your mind because you're going to walk down this road, the middle of the road any longer. Make up your mind. And so anyway, the, the bell prophets come together and I say, okay, tell you what, guys, what you're going to do, you go first, get your best prophets up here. You guys are going to put your sacrifice on top of the altar and you're going to call upon your God to come down here and consume that altar. And then afterwards, I will do the same. And we'll find out today whose God is bigger, whose God is stronger. So all these bell prophets, they get together, they put their meat up there, and then they start doing their crazy little dances, you know, the little, yeah, come rain type thing, or whatever it is, right? Um, in order to put an end to the drought, that's the problem, to put an end to the drought. And, and it doesn't work. They dance and they dance all day long. Elijah begins to taunt them. Maybe your God went to the restroom, he says at one point. It's in the scriptures. Maybe he went to relieve himself is what it says. And he's just taunting them. And then they do what is just appalling. They begin to take the tips of their spears and they start cutting themselves, bleeding out on the altar their own blood. Because in many, in many faith groups, it's understood that for atonement of your sin, blood must be shed. Whether it be an animal blood or your personal blood. But many religions started out with self-sacrifice. It's, it's, it's morbid. Some would even say, well, we need to sacrifice our children. I've thought about that from time to time. Um, uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor That's probably a different confessional time. But the, but the point is, is that their God never showed up. 
So Elijah said, back up. It's time to show you a couple things. So he ordered a bunch of barrels of water to be brought, and they completely saturated the altar to where the, the ditch around the altar was even filled with water. Everything was soaked like, a, like it came from, you know, this region during springtime. It was just soaked to death. It had moss all over, you know, whatever it is. But anyway, and then he began to pray to his God in heaven. And when God showed up, the fire from heaven descended and it lapped up every ounce of water, every drop of water, and it consumed the altar and it just completely mesmerized all of the people that were gathered. To make a long story even shorter, we know that Elijah, after being victorious, uh, made comment to all of the people of Israel as they now have confirmed their faith in God alone He had all 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah murdered. He had them cut to death. But then in chapter 19, something very unique happens. We find that King Ahab went and told his wife Jezebel, queen wickedness, uh, what had happened. And Jezebel made the comment, she was the backbone behind the king. She was the muscle behind the power, right? So she said, she spoke these words, if by this time tomorrow I do not make his life like that of one of them, those prophets. May it be ever so severely. And in verse 3, it says, Elijah was afraid. We have two responses in this world, love, fear. In verse 3, after showing a full display of his love for God and his commitment to God, he was gripped with fear. This amazing prophet of the Lord was afraid. And as he was afraid, he ran for his life. He, he says he tucked his, his garment up under his belt and he just ran around. It was about 18 miles before he reached his destination. He even outran King Ahab's uh, chariot. He was, he was scared to death. It says that uh, while he, in verse 4, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he left his servant behind. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. You see, this prophet of the Lord was experiencing depression like we don't see very typically. But but here's some interesting points about his depression. It was based in fear. He responded by isolating himself eventually hiding in a cave where nobody would know where he is. He, he continued by, by not practicing self-care. He wasn't eating right. He wasn't sleeping right. He was extremely, uh, he was just shut down mentally. And in that, he began to rehearse over and over lies that have been planted in his head. I am the only one who loves the Lord. We like to over-exaggerate when we get to the place of depression, when we get to the place of frustration. I'm the only one who who knows what's going on. I'm the only one who reads their Bible. I'm the only one who sings. I'm the only one who cares. I'm the only one who serves, the only one who cleans toilets, the only one who does whatever. I'm the only one. And we start rehearsing that over and over. And then the devil, of course, hijacks it. And he says, you're right, buddy. If I were you, I'd just throw it in. But here's what I want to talk to you about. We've wasted a little bit of time. No, we haven't wasted. When we get in chapter 19, verse 9, the Lord shows up. 
He's hiding out in the cave. He's feeling sorry for himself. He's all depressed. He's ready to die. He's praying that God will take his life because he doesn't have the guts to do it himself. Um, That's not to taunt him. That's just to say he didn't have the ability to do it. God, why don't you just take my life? And God shows up and he says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah goes and he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They broke down your altars. They put your prophets to death. And now they want to kill me. They want to kill me too. And God says, here's your instructions. I want you to walk to the front of the cave and I'm going to show up there. I'm going to show myself to you. All right, so he's still in the back of the cave saying, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go to church. I just want to stay here in bed. Just leave me alone. Why don't anybody just leave me alone? And so God first acts with this huge violent wind. It just rips the mountain apart, rocks flying everywhere. This is a loud explosion. It's a mighty display of God's power, but he doesn't even flinch. And the scriptures say that God wasn't in the wind. And then it says an earthquake followed, and the earthquake was even more intense, and it was more violent, and it was more loud, and it it should have provoked some fear in him, if nothing else. He was already afraid, but of people. It should have provoked something in him, but nothing. He didn't even flinch. And then the scriptures say that fire came, and the fire was all-consuming. Everything in its path burned up. Another mighty display of God's power. But then it says, after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And Elijah heard it. A gentle whisper. When he heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave because he finally heard God speak. Not through the violence, not through the the display of power, not through the might and all this kind of huge stuff, but through the gentle spirit that just barely caught his ear. He got up and he went to the face of the cave. And then the voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he repeated himself, I've been very zealous for the Lord. Nobody has followed me and now they're trying to kill me too. In Isaiah 51, 12, it says this, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should fear mortal man, the sons of men who are but grass? God is basically saying in our behalf, for any time you've ever been afraid of people, your employer, your spouse, your children, your baby, whatever it is, anytime you've ever been afraid of people, God says to you, who are they? Who are you that you should be afraid of them? I am the God of comfort. I am the one who will give you peace. I'm the one who will blanket you with grace. I'm the good father who loves you. Why would you be afraid of them? Just come to me. But you don't do that. Page two. Sorry, my fingers got stuck. In Philippians 1, 27 through 28, it says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. Now listen to this. Contending as one man or woman for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way 
by those who oppose you. In 1 John 4, 17, 18, it says, Love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. All of this to be said now as we get into this passage in Matthew to talk about Christmas What does all of this have to do with anything? Good question. This is what it all boils down to. When the time was right, when the timing was perfect, in your life, my life, and also in this world, God sent his son Jesus to be born to us. This was done over 2,000 years ago, once and for all, for everyone. But individually and personally, it happens when you are ready as an individual to receive the gift of God that has come into this world in the form of a child, in the form of a gentle whisper. When you hear that whisper and you receive it and you, you, you allow it to penetrate you at the deepest core of your being, that is when the child has been born for you into this world, a gentle whisper. It says that uh, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she got pregnant. You might remember this, this, this famous annunciation where, where the angel came and said, hey, Mary, guess what? You're going to have a child. You're going to be immaculately conceived, and you're going to give birth to this child who will be the savior of the world. She could have gone with fear, but she chose love. She chose grace. May it be as you have said, she said, that she didn't even balk. She just said, may it be as you have spoken. Joseph had another situation because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. He did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. He was choosing fear over love. Fear of what others would say because he was with a woman who got pregnant from somewhere that was not him. He was going to parent a child that wasn't his. This is unheard of in those days as it is in this day, you would think. But but anyway, he was choosing fear over love. And then the angel had to come and appear to him in the middle of the night and said, Hey, don't be afraid. Be loving. Take her to be your wife. Treat this child as if it's your own. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then later it says, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, which also means God loves us. So, so here's, here's what God is telling me. Whenever you get to that place in your life that your life is completely falling apart, you don't think you can get out of bed the next day, your body hurts, your mind hurts, everybody hates you, even your church doesn't want you there, your bill payers are angry at you because you haven't sent them a check in a while, your employer hates you because you have a terrible attitude when you come to work, Everything's falling apart. Everything is shutting down and you just have absolutely nowhere else to turn 
And so you just, you just hope that if, if there's a God up there that can do anything, that he will do something to intervene in your life. Just listen for the voice, the breath from heaven, that gentle spirit that just it speaks to you at this place where nothing else can speak to you. See, the child's voice, it doesn't. It's just, it's just amazing that God would love us that much. And, and so this is what the kind of response I get. No, I don't need a baby in a manger. No, I don't need Jesus. I need, I need some money. Give me money and I'll be okay. Give me some therapies where I can get off this substance and then I'll be okay. Get rid of my spouse and I'll be okay. Help me find a job that actually meets my, my needs and I'll be okay. Give me a child that shows me respect and I'll be okay. Everything has to be on our terms, doesn't it? And so we cry out. We, we just pray, God, if, if you're really there, why don't you answer my prayer? And God says, I did. Did you not hear it? Your answer came. It's still there. It's all around you, and you're still ignoring it. But that's what this love thing is all about. If you think about it, you know, Christmas, why, why would God need to give us love for Christmas? Because we, we loved people long before we ever heard of Jesus, right? I know lots of couples that have been married and they don't know Jesus. So why do they need love? Well, because what they have is a, a facsimile of love. You know, when I, when I, when I speak at a, at a, a wedding, I always say um, what we have learned about love up to now was taught us from our parents and our grandparents. Well, my parents have been divorced four times. Well, they still taught you what love is from their perspective, from their experience. Well, well, grandma hated grandpa. Well, they're still teaching you about love. Every, whatever you know about love, you've learned from watching and observing those around you. Jesus came into the world to teach you what real love is. Unconditional love. Sacrificial love. While we were still sinners, he came and he died for us. He chose to die for us so that we could have eternal life in him. While we were still sinners. In our brokenness, he died for us. In our frustration, in our worship of other gods, he died for us. He did all of this for us. He's the answer. The, The fact is, we have a lot of fake love in this world, but we don't have a lot of the real stuff. You can, you can see it. You'll, you'll identify it when you see it in somebody, some people. But you'll also see fake love in a lot of people too. Anyway, what I pray for for you for this Christmas is that you will, you'll, you'll see what love really is and that you'll come to embrace it. He's an amazing God. That's all I can say. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your blanket of grace to fall upon us so that you will open our eyes to see this Jesus who's right in front of our eyes. I pray that you'll open our hearts that we'll be receptive to the message of of love that was spoken in that whisper so many years ago. 
I pray that you'll help us to be completely inundated with your love and grace, completely overwhelmed by your Holy Spirit, completely changed by the power of your Son and and the blood of redemption that fell upon us. Father, make us different. We, We don't like being the way we have been. So please breathe a new life into us. In Christ we pray, amen. We're going to stand and sing. Don's going to take it from here. Ellie and I are going to go change, get ready to get wet. And um, let's uh, celebrate. Come and after me.